This morning's reading is taken from Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 19. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent this angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there were no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. Thank you, Zoe, very much, and uh, we'll include you and Dave in our prayers a little bit later on. Trust that Saturday is a really wonderful day for both of you. Thank you to Andrew for sharing about Mercy Mission, Becky for opening up the theme of prayer, which was obviously very much in our reading just now, uh, and really it all ties together, doesn't it? Because Mercy Mission has been so much a, a project that has emerged out of the faithful praying of God's people and the provision where God has provided so much. And next week we have Harvest, and I think it would be good if we kind of thought of Mercy Mission as part of uh, our Harvest celebration, and we'll kind of link what Andrew said this morning into next week as well. And that indeed may well be the way in which you feel God is calling you to respond 
at this harvest season, but there's also the opportunity of bringing uh, produce for Crossroads, uh, for those who are homeless here in Birmingham, uh, and also for Syrian refugees through the BMS project. So more about all of that next week. But whatever it is that God is prompting you to, to do is going to be so important. But just a few words from me now to take us a bit further in the challenge of believing prayer from this story of Peter's escape from prison and the disciples who were praying at that time. Just want to take a few moments to say something about the story uh, and then two very important things that I want to underline. This was a pivotal moment in the life of the early church. As we look at this story in context, uh, the narrative of the book of Acts moves back to Jerusalem at this point. The overall picture uh, since Pentecost had been one of growth. 3,000 people, of course, converted on the day of Pentecost, increased to 5,000 soon after. Then there were Samaritans who believed. There was the Ethiopian official. There was the wonderful conversion of Saul, who became Paul. There was Cornelius and his household in Caesarea, and a mixed crowd in Antioch. So story after story was about the growth of the early church. The gospel was spreading. That was all kind of Acts chapters 1 to 11. Acts chapters 13 onwards is another story of growth, often described as the missionary journeys, as Paul and his colleagues set out to bring the good news of Christ to many other locations. More expansion and growth. So this story, Acts chapter 12, sits between the rapid growth of the early church and the next phase of growth across the Mediterranean Sea. And that's very important. So this chapter has a strategic place in the middle of the story. And actually, it's a major setback here in Jerusalem. Because this story is telling us of the death of James and the imprisonment of Peter. Both were apostles and leaders in the Jerusalem church. The reason for this was Herod Agrippa I, who was the nephew of the Herod who was involved in the trial of Jesus. And that, of course, was not that many weeks previously. The story opens with a general comment about the disciples being arrested by Herod. And then it focuses on James. James was one of the 12 original disciples who was put to death by the sword. That means he was beheaded. Here was a key leader who was brutally murdered. And then Peter was arrested something that happened during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And because of that, uh, no trial could take place, so he was put in prison. It wasn't the first time for Peter. He'd been in prison before in Jerusalem, previously by Jewish authorities, this time by the Romans. But can you sense the pressure under which the early Christians were engaging in mission? That this chapter highlights that. There had been this enormous spread of the Christian faith, so exciting, story after story. And now it just seems if it's all falling apart. James is beheaded. Peter's put in prison. The pressure is mounting. But God had already delivered Peter once from prison. Could he do it again? Or was the church about to lose Peter as they had lost James? At this moment, the church prayed earnestly. That is such an important part of this story. The church was earnestly praying to God. 
for him. We don't know how long that prayer continues. The sense I get from reading this story is that it could have been several days while Peter was in prison during the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread until it was the appropriate time to bring him out for trial. And the church sustained prayer through that time. Peter was close to death. But suddenly the angel of the Lord appeared to him. A remarkable moment. And for Peter, it was a miraculous escape. And then as just as suddenly as the angel came, the angel left him. And for the church, this was a wonderful sign of hope. Could they have survived without Peter and James? We'll never know. But it was in the sovereign purpose of God to deliver Peter from the hands of the Roman authorities and to set him free from prison. And the church was still praying when he was released. It's a fabulous story, isn't it? Peter's release, that he went to the house, and Rhoda, the servant girl in the house, went to the door, heard it was Peter, didn't let him in, went back to the others. They couldn't really believe it was Peter, and so he went on until eventually they let him in and so on. The house may have been the same place where Jesus shared the Last Supper, where the disciples met before Pentecost. Uh, we don't know these details, but it was certainly one of the Christian houses in Jerusalem. And Peter knew where to go. He knew where people would be. And yet there was a huge surprise when he came at the door. And when Herod's soldiers the next day came in search of Peter, they failed to find him. I've skipped over bits of the story, but that's the kind of headline. But this is what I believe we really need to grasp from this story this morning. Two very important things. First of all, God is able to break chains. Peter was physically chained in prison. And the angel came and released him from the chains. And that was his moment of freedom. What are the chains of the 21st century? There are, I think, chain, chains of persecution and oppression in various parts of the world. Certainly on Christian communities in the Middle East and in other countries, and increasingly in India. India now amongst the top 10 countries where people are persecuted because they are Christians. And the work of Mercy Mission is under increasing pressure, such that we can never be sure for how much longer we will have the freedom of supporting this amazing work in India. The time might come when that is not allowed. Many of you will know that the program of compassion was withdrawn from India some years ago. And there's similar pressure on all, all, all Christian work that is in any way supported from other parts of the world. So there are chains of persecution and oppression in various parts of the world. There are chains of injustice across the world, human trafficking, third world debt, the rise of radicalism and extremism of all kinds. There are the chains of marginalization and discrimination on Christian business, charities and churches in the UK. Now we cannot put ourselves alongside what is happening in other parts of the world. But nevertheless, there are those situations in this country as well which are challenging. We can be thankful that there is a genuine desire not to exclude 
Christian communities from having a significant role in our society. We should recognize and value the positive freedoms we enjoy. But there are pressures, they are subtle, they are increasing, and there have been some very sad examples in recent years of where Christians have been, if you like, put in chains in this country. The greatest chains, I would suggest to you, are our own sin and our personal need of salvation. Which is why the challenge of repentance that we had two weeks ago and the challenge of active faith are so, so important if we are to know the freedom that Christ is able to bring. That's what inspired Charles Wesley to write the hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain an Interest in My Savior's Blood? My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. I think for some people or so, there is a chain of personal failure and regret. Not living life to the full in this present moment. And not able to look positively to the future because of what has happened in the past. I think some people live almost with chains of failure and of regret. Some of these chains are very real in our lives and in the lives of other people. But the message from this story this morning is that God is able to break chains. There is a freedom that comes through faith in Christ. There's a wholeness of life that comes through faith in Christ. There's a transformation in the world which comes through faith in Christ. God is able to break chains. How does he do it? How does he do it? Well, what was the underlying element in this story in Acts 12? Was it not? that the church gathered earnestly to pray. Now, it's not a magical formula if you pray, God does that. But underlying the work of God's Spirit in this story were the prayers of God's people. So let's come on to say that prayer is absolutely vital. And if we're going to see God break chains across the world, in communities, in nations, in individual lives, in our own life, we need to come before him in expectant prayer. That prayer was central to the life of the early church. It was vital in this story. And as we look a little bit closer into this story, I would suggest that there are uh, at least three things about the praying which was important. Believers were praying earnestly. The word that is used here literally means being stretched in their prayer. A prayer which requires real effort, mental and spiritual concentration. You can indeed pray at any time, in any place, in any way, with any words. There is something about prayer that demands the whole of your being, that you're serious with God in what you say. Praying earnestly, the same word that's used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when in anguish he prayed more earnestly, his prayers 
were like drops of blood. I wonder whether we've lost something of that in our prayers today. Do we pray knowing that everything depends upon prayer? That deep, earnest energy. Peter was in prison and the disciples prayed earnestly. Jesus was about to be sentenced to death. He too prayed earnestly. Where is the mental and spiritual concentration in our praying today that the life and health of the church depends on your prayers and on my prayers? Not a matter of where you pray, for how long you pray, but that focus of heart and mind. Praying earnestly, praying together as well, the believers had come together in one place. They all met in Mary's house. Now, the pattern of diff togetherness was very different in the New Testament, a different culture, a different use of time, different ways in which people related. But the idea of community was central. And the heart of their community life was a commitment to prayer. It just felt as if praying together was natural and spontaneous when they met together. So I want to encourage us to have that same element of spontaneity and freedom as we pray, particularly as we come together to worship. Find ways of bringing prayer into a more central place in our church life. It's great that we have the prayer room, the rhythm of prayer, the prayer chain, people who are prayed for in church, but we've not captured in the same way, the sense of the whole congregation coming together to pray. Becky gave us the opportunity just now of offering those prayers to God that have been shaped by creative use of foil. I've still got my foil. I know what it represents. I doubt if anyone else can recognize it. But I know what it means. And that's my prayer today. God is calling us to pray together and praying expectantly. There's actually a human twist in this amazing story, isn't it? Because if the believers were really praying expectantly, they shouldn't have been so surprised when Peter turned up at the door. But sometimes we are surprised when something happens that is an answer to prayer. And we should be encouraged and excited to see God at work. And not really surprised because there's a godly expectation that God is hearing and answering our prayers. And that Hebrew word for expectancy is closely linked to the word for hope. We're a people of hope. The God of hope fills us with all joy and peace. And from that position of a living hope, we can expect God to work as we pray. His answers may not be what we think. They may not be what we like. But they will be there. And God's way is always best. So will you take to heart the challenge of believing prayer? And see the difference this makes in the whole of your life. And whatever your current experience of prayer, take it further today. 
because God is able to break chains when people come 